Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. So we've looked at how a canon is formed, a canon in music, a canon in literature, and the canon of the Bible. We've also looked at how a text becomes viewed as sacred and how that sacred text evolved into the canon of the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. Today, I'd like to take a look at the New Testament. So we understand that the Old Testament canon was in flux for a very long time, but what about the New? What about the Christian books of Scripture? We have to understand that Jesus wrote nothing. Not a book, not a letter, not a laundry list. Jesus' entire public ministry involved oral teaching and preaching, validated by miraculous healings. It was left to his disciples, the apostles and others, to write his story and to implement his desire that the gospel message be proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. That was done not by writing books, but by oral teaching and preaching, as Jesus had done. As we've seen, books in an age when each book had to be laboriously hand-copied, were a very expensive and very inefficient way to disseminate information. Jesus could sit on a hillside, perched a half-mile west of Capernaum, and preach to a crowd of 5,000 people. St. Paul could stay in Ephesus, the major deep water port on the west coast of Asia Minor, and within three years, we read in Acts 19, verse 10, all the inhabitants of the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, Jews and Greeks alike, as a result of his teaching and preaching to travelers passing through Ephesus. No, books were a very inefficient way of spreading the gospel. Besides, there was no need to write a book for virtually every first-generation Christian believed that Jesus would return within his or her lifetime to usher in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Books enshrined words for the ages, elevating them to the sacred. But the gospel message was urgent. It was a message for right now. The earliest Christian writings are those from St. Paul, and his letters and epistles were occasional. That is, they were written for a specific audience or purpose, not for the church as a whole. The earliest were probably First and Second Thessalonians, written during St. Paul's second missionary journey, shortly after arriving in Corinth, sometime between A.D. 53 and 54. St. Paul probably wrote Galatians at the same time, since he had passed through Galatian territory at the beginning of his second missionary journey. Galatians also addresses specific issues in the newly formed Galatian churches, chiefly that of other teachers passing through and preaching a different gospel than the one St. Paul preached. In Galatians, St. Paul advises the Galatian churches that any person who teaches anything other than what Paul himself had taught is to be anathema, that is, accursed. In other words, tell them to go to hell. <laughs> he said that? Uh, yeah, he did. All of St. Paul's epistles, 
Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, as well as his personal letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, are occasional, addressing immediate problems or concerns. They were not meant to be theological treatises, works written for the ages. And the same is true for Hebrews, James, 1st Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 2 Peter is the only epistle addressed to the church at large and meant to have universal timeless application. It was written sometime between AD 64 to 68, while St. Peter was awaiting execution in Rome during the persecutions under Nero. He was cooling his heels in the Mamertine prison. The Gospels were another story, though. Jesus had said to his apostles, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We read that in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus did not tell his apostles to go write books. He told them to preach and teach as he had done. Jesus' message was urgent. For as he said in the Olivet Discourse, Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Everyone, as I noted earlier, everyone in the first generation church expected Jesus to return during his or her own lifetime. When the early to mid-60s arrived, however, two things happened. Those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' teaching and preaching, to his death, burial, and resurrection, were aging, and many had already died. And two, the first state-sponsored persecution against Christians began in Rome, directed by the Emperor Nero in A.D. 64-68, a time during which both Peter and Paul were caught in the net and martyred. It's impossible to know how many Christians were martyred in Rome between 64 and 68, but the aging eyewitness population and Roman persecution served as catalysts for the story of Jesus to be written down, lest it be lost, seeing as how Christ had not yet returned and the eyewitnesses were quickly disappearing. Mark was probably the first gospel written sometime in the early to mid-60s. Matthew followed, probably in the late 60s, and Luke appeared in the early to mid-70s. The three are known as the synoptic gospels. Sin, like synonym, the same, optic, eye, seen with the same eye. John, knowing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were in circulation in the Christian communities, did something entirely different with his gospel sometime in the late 80s or early 90s. And of course, many other works were written in the centuries that followed. Like the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, hundreds of New Testament apocrypha emerged, giving accounts of Jesus and his teaching, stories of the apostles, and musings on God and the lives of the saints. Such works were commonplace in the early centuries of the church. Works like the Apocalypse of Peter, written sometime around A.D. 175 to 200, offering a vision of heaven and hell granted to Peter by Jesus. The Gospel According to Judas, written sometime around A.D. 280, 
which claims that Judas was not a betrayer at all, but that he carried out Jesus' specific instructions. And the Gospel according to Thomas, sometime around 340 AD. Not a narrative of Jesus' life, but a collection of sayings attributed to Jesus. So which of these would make it into the New Testament canon? There were many lists of New Testament canonical writings beginning in the second century. Four of these are particularly important. Probably the earliest of these is the Morturian fragment from around AD 170 to 270. It includes the four Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, all 13 of St. Paul's epistles and letters, Jude, two letters of John, and Revelation. Missing in the Morturian fragment are Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, and one letter of John. Added are the Apocalypse of Peter and the Wisdom of Solomon. Second, in the first half of the 4th century, that is, A.D. 300-350, the church historian Eusebius offered a list that included 22 books, omitting as disputed James, Jude, 2nd Peter, and 2nd and 3rd John. Third, Cyril of Jerusalem, around A.D. 350, listed all 27 books of the current New Testament except the book of Revelation. And finally, in A.D. 367, Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria sent his annual letter to the churches in his diocese. The 39th Festal Letter contained a definitive list of the 27 books that would become the canon of the New Testament as we know it today. Now note, that was A.D. 367. As we can see, the list of books included in the New Testament were more or less consistent, although there were some disagreements. The standard for inclusion seems to have been twofold. Number one, a book was attributed to an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle. And two, it was written during the first generation of the church. Under the influence and direction of St. Augustine, the list of 27 books given by Athanasius of Alexandria was codified at the Council of Hippo in A.D. 393, affirmed at the Council of Carthage in 397, and reaffirmed by Pope Innocent I in A.D. 405. But back to the Old Testament. As we've seen, the Old Testament canon remained open during the time of Jesus and the formation of the first generation church. Many books written in Greek, Aramaic, and Coptic were used by both Jews and Christians all throughout the Roman Empire. In the first century AD, the church was predominantly Jewish, but by the end of the second century AD, Gentiles made up the vast majority of believers. For Christians at the time, the Hebrew Scriptures, or the Old Testament, had its greatest value not in how it illuminated the history, destiny, and self-understanding of the Jews, but in how it foreshadowed or pointed to Christ, especially as Gentiles became more and more prominent in the Church. By the time we get to St. Augustine and the Council of Hippo in AD 393, a Christian canon of Old Testament scripture have begun to take shape, 
based upon those books in the Septuagint that Jesus would have known, those books that foreshadowed Christ, and those that were efficacious for teaching about Christ. Codex Sinaiticus, a Greek manuscript written between AD 330 and 360 in beautiful unsealed script, capital letters, is one of the two earliest complete copies of the Christian Bible. Codex Sinaiticus was discovered by Constantine von Tischendorf in 1844 at St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. I've been to St. Catherine's Monastery and a wonderful place with a fabulous library, one that's very difficult to get permission to go in because, frankly, Constantine von Tischendorf stole Codex Sinaiticus from St. Catherine's Monastery. That's another story in and of itself. But the text of the Old Testament is that of the Greek Septuagint, and it includes all the deuterocanonical books, plus the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas. Its New Testament includes all 27 books. St. Augustine drew up a list of all the books of the Old Testament in AD 393, for discussion at the Council of Hippo. And it included the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Job, the book of Tobit, Esther, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Among the poetical books, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and the Book of Wisdom and the Book of Ecclesiasticus. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. And the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And notice in St. Augustine's list, we have books that today are not in the common canon, Tobit, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus. St. Augustine's list includes 44 books with Lamentations and Baruch, which are included under Jeremiah, and that list totals 46 books the same 46 books that were translated into Latin by St. Jerome as the Latin Vulgate, which became the Bible of Christendom for the next 1,000 years. That's a long and very distinguished pedigree, an important criterion, as we learned, for affirming canonical status. Indeed, these are the very same books that were affirmed as canonical at the fourth session of the Council of Trent on April 4th, 1546, the same books that were affirmed by Vatican Council II's Dei Verbum on November 18th, 1965, and the very same books that are included in all Roman Catholic Bibles, the canon that includes the deuterocanonical works of Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, and additions to Daniel and Esther. That canon has a 1,000-year-old pedigree. Later, at the time of the Reformation, 
those additional seven books were removed from the canon of Scripture. You know, it's often said that, well, the Catholics added seven books to the Bible. No, quite the contrary. The Protestants took them out. They were there pretty much from the beginning. But the common canon, the common canon of 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 of the New, or the Septuagint canon, the longer canon of the 46 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New, they are the canon of Scripture that we know today. Whether in Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox Bibles, or simply Protestant Bibles that remove the seven. So, there's our formation of the canon of Scripture. Why do we have the books that we have in the Bible? Well, the last three podcasts, including this one, tell the tale. So I hope that informs you. I hope they entertained you. And I hope you'll be back for our next podcast next week. Bye-bye, gang. See you then.